Back in March of 2008, the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine published a very strange article on a subject rarely discussed by scientists or academics, the plagues in the Book of Egypt, in the Book of Exodus. A doctor named Joel Aaron Kranz and a biologist, Deborah Sampson, published an article entitled The Origin of the Old Testament Plagues, Explications and Implications. Now, countless attempts had been made to explain the plagues by preachers and biblical scholars, but never had one been published by scientists in an illustrious peer-reviewed Ivy League journal. The researchers proposed that the cause of the plagues in Egypt was an aberrant El Nino Southern Oscillation that brought progressive warming along the ancient Mediterranean, which initiated a series of catastrophes, an ecological event with a cascade of consequences. Blight on the water would kill the fish and cause the frogs to leave the river. The rotting corpses of the frogs would then attract insects. Biting flies would come and transmit disease to livestock, sparking epizoic epidemics like pestilence in the cows and the cattle, boils on human bodies, and even the sudden and mysterious death of large swaths of the population. In other words, the author's unifying causative theory of the plagues in Egypt was climate change. Now, this article was amazing. Not because it proved a miracle in the Bible may have actually happened, but that research scientists can learn lessons about our current ecological crisis in ancient biblical stories that we cannot always see. For instance, 1 Kings chapter 17 begins with Elijah, the Tishabite prophet, proclaiming to King Ahab, as the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Every biblical scholar will try to tell you Elijah declared this drought as punishment for Ahab's sins, particularly the idolatrous worship of Baal. But what kind of God brings a drought upon innocent people because of the sins of an oppressive leader? Are we to unquestioningly accept that image of God in this story? What if instead of punishment for the spiritual sins of King Ahab, the drought were simply the logical consequences of King Ahab's environmentally disruptive policies? In middle school social studies class, you may remember, we all learned about the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, the seedbed of civilization. My teacher, social studies teacher Rob Dorman told me the Fertile Crescent was where it all started, where civilization began. Small farming villages flourished near the banks of these two great tributaries, resulting in a population explosion of one of the first great city-states known as Sumer, who produced the first known alphabet, cuneiform. In the early 20th century, though, archaeologists were puzzled about how this once rich and powerful civilization became a barren desert. What happened to ancient Sumer, they asked. And so they studied it, and they found that over the centuries, that silt carried by the rivers built up in the stream beds, making the surrounding farmlands below the level of the rivers. So the Sumerians, as you would, constructed levees to irrigate the fields, where water then collected on the surface to nourish the crops. But 
hot Mesopotamian sun evaporated the standing water and left behind layers of salt, a process we now call salinization. One clay tablet found from the time in Sumer recorded that the earth turned white. The only solution to the problem of this salty soil or salinization was for the Sumerians to leave the land fallow for a season. Over time, the rain would naturally and slowly remove the salt from the soil. Sumerian farmers knew that leaving the land fallow was the sustainable thing to do, the only way to help the land to heal. But the rulers of Sumer based their wealth and power on the productivity of an ever-growing population, and they ordered the farmers to continue irrigating and planting on damaged land, and soon the crops began to decrease steadily. The Sumerian people began to suffer from hunger and disease. Eventually, the rulers could no longer feed their large armies. And their short-sighted demands led to the collapse of their civilization. Drought and famine broke out. Peasant revolts and war erupted over the control of the food supply. By 1800 BC, agriculture in Mesopotamia had disappeared, leaving an impoverished people on a desolate and poisoned land. The world's first civilization vanished into the desert because of a monumental environmental disaster caused by their leader's greed. King Ahab in our story today, which begins 1 Kings 17, was similar to the leaders of Samaria. He followed his father King Omri's footsteps by completing the construction of the city of Samaria as the new capital of Israel. Ahab built an acropolis there and then a royal palace for himself known as the House of Ivory because it was adorned with incredible amounts of ivory artwork taken from the tusks of thousands of elephants and hippos. He fortified Samaria's high walls, rebuilt the city of Jericho even though he wasn't supposed to, as well as Hazor, Sheshem, and Megiddo. Famous for his army of chariot warriors and trained infantry soldiers, King Ahab waged constant total war across the ancient Near Eastern world, conquering over 252 kingdoms, extending his dominion across much of the Mediterranean. He became so wealthy that he built summer and winter palaces for all 70 of his children. However, to construct this vast empire, Ahab had to have materials and labor. Materials, for instance, like gigantic bricks. Gigantic bricks that could only be made in large kilns. And these kilns required massive amounts of wood to fuel the firing process. Sort of like coal today, the wood had to come from somewhere. So where would Ahab find the wood? He cleared all the forests around Judea. And within a few years, the deforestation there caused erosion of the farmlands in the valley, and King Ahab's attempt to build an empire led directly to a drought and a famine in the land. I couldn't help but think of King Ahab this week as world leaders met in Glasgow for the United Nations Climate Change Conference known as COP26. It's hard not to see our world leaders today as modern-day King Ahab's. And then, of course, the protesters outside, like Greta Thunberg and Vanessa Nakate as the prophet Elijah. 
Outside the conference this week, Thunberg criticized the lack of leadership and real action from governments at the COP26 conference and said to protesters, inside COP there are politicians and people in power pretending to take our future seriously, pretending to take our present seriously. They're not taking seriously the people who are affected today mostly by climate crisis in the southern hemisphere. Change is not going to come from inside there, she said. That's not leadership. This protest is what leadership looks like. And then she said, so we say to those leaders, no more blah, blah, blah. No more exploitation of people, nature, and the planet. No more whatever the heck they're doing in there. We're sick and tired of it. We're going to make change whether they like it or not. And then she led protesters in a chant. No more blah, blah, blah. No more blah, blah, blah. When Elijah the Tishbite stood up and proclaimed that there would be a drought, he was basically telling King Ahab, no more blah, blah, blah. No more empty words. No more false promises. No more talking points and task forces. No more disingenuous royal proclamations. No more perfunctory accords. No more words from you, King Ahab. It's time for you to hear God's word. You brought this drought and famine on yourself and your people, and your chickens have come home to roost. Your rain god, Baal, will not be able to deliver you. Your wife, Jezebel, will not protect you. Your armies and your buildings will not be able to save you. There will be no more rain until the creator of the universe says so. You may have all the wealth and power in the world, but you can't make it rain. You may have all the wealth and power in the world, but you can't end the drought. You may have all the wealth and power in the world, but you can't feed your people. Only God and the earth can do that. Now we can read the drought in this story as punishment on the sins of King Ahab and Jezebel who disavowed Yahweh and forced the entire empire to worship the Canaanite fertility god Baal. But another way of reading this story is that the creator of the earth simply allowed King Ahab to experience the logical consequences of his ecological sins, the logical consequence of his policies of war and empire building, leading to deforestation, drought, and famine. Throughout human history, most environmental disasters occurred because of things like the salinization of the soil, erosion of farmlands caused by irrigation systems, and deforestation. In virtually every case, however, political leaders contributed to their own downfall by over-exploiting their own environment for short-term gains while ignoring the long-term consequences. And it seems like we never learn. But after the drought set in, God sent Elijah out of Ahab's empire and into the wilderness. Elijah was not the first to flee or be sent into the wilderness. That was Hagar and Israel after escaping from Egypt. And later Jesus would follow in their footsteps. The wilderness is a harsh and deserted place devoid of all the resources of the empire, often a place of desolation and death, as we see in the Exodus story. But as we also see in Exodus, the wilderness can be a place of freedom, freedom from imperial violence and surveillance, freedom from impotent fertility cults, freedom from 
imperial water shortage and food supply issues, freedom from the constant environmental disruption, freedom from the lie of scarcity, the dictated economic policies and practices of Ahab's kingdom. Ahab's kingdom, as we know now, depended on armies and buildings, war and wood, but it turns out the kingdom of God depends on rivers and ravens, widows and orphans. Ahab's kingdom was built on violence and production, displacement and death, but God's kingdom was built on harmony and peace, interconnection and symbiosis. In Ahab's kingdom, people exploit each other over wealth and power. But in God's kingdom, people feed each other and share, even when they have very, very little. Ahab's kingdom leads to drought, famine, and devastation. God's wilderness kingdom is teeming with love, life, and liberation. In a letter to John Dryden, the Australian poet James McCauley wrote this prayer. Incarnate word in whom all nature lives, cast flame upon the earth, raise up contemplatives among us, those who walk within the fire of ceaseless prayer and impetuous desire. Set pools of silence in this thirsty land. We are living in a thirsty land. Our earth is thirsty. The land is thirsty. Our bodies, minds, and souls are thirsty. Our neighborhoods and cities are thirsty. We are living in a time of great drought. Of course, extreme droughts in the West, in California, but also moderate droughts in Mecklenburg County and on our coastline in North Carolina. But just as in the days of Elijah, we are also in the midst of another drought, a moral and spiritual drought. We're living in a world where the things that nourish our bodies and souls have all but dried up. The ethical aridity in the air is enough to steal the breath from our lungs. We are parched of love in this land. We are starved of generosity, starved of hospitality. Hope seems to have fallen in the cracks of our broken soil. We are thirsty for springs of living water, like Jeremiah proclaimed, that can come and restore us and our land. We are thirsty for springs of justice to roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, as the prophet Amos proclaimed. We're thirsty for the living water that Jesus shared with the Samaritan woman that can break down the walls of patriarchy, break through political and religious division, and rush in to liberate an entire people. We are all thirsty, thirsty for healing, political, social, personal, spiritual, communal healing. Are we not thirsty for healing? Our land has been dried up by political cruelty, unjust policies, obscene economic inequality, extraordinary hatred, wild indifference, the hoarding of resources and the myth of scarcity, the pestilence of sickness and disease, never-ending war, and a seemingly eternal construction project. In this moral, spiritual, and ecological drought, we are all longing for healing, thirsting for healing, crying out for healing, our throats are parched from shouting for healing. 
We've got wounds that need medicine, bandages, water, and protection. Sometimes it feels like healing will never come. Sometimes it feels like there's no balm in Gilead. Sometimes it feels like there is no way out of this drought and famine. But the story of Elijah is filled with good news for our thirsting bodies and our famished souls. There is healing available for all of us. There is healing for the land and healing for the people. There is shelter for the homeless, water for the thirsty, food for the hungry, resurrection even for the dead. There is a balm in Gilead. There is good medicine available for us. There is a way to wholeness. But the path to healing is not as straightforward or as easy as we would like it to be. It goes in a roundabout way into and through the wilderness. The path to healing comes by way of a strange journey through a distant land into the counterproductive places like the desert where we find strange connections and relationships that occur outside the boundaries of Israel, far beyond the purview of kings like Ahab, in the abandoned corners of the empire where the rivers and the ravens reside, where the widows and the orphans reside where the creatures of the earth and the people who don't have very much to live on reside. There's no healing in Samaria in this story, in Jericho or in Tyre, but there is healing in Zarephath. There's no healing with Ahab and Jezebel and their policies, but there is healing with the widow and her son. Some preacher once told me that every woman in the Bible needs a name. And the rabbis describe the widow of Zarephath as a woman of valor, or in Hebrew, Eshet Shail. So it's appropriate for us to call the widow in this story Eshet Shail, a woman of valor. And when the prophet of Elijah came to her as a stranger from a foreign land and asked poor Eshet Shail for a cup of water in the midst of a drought and a morsel of bread in the midst of a famine, she was in her rights to tell him to bug off. As a poor widow providing for her family in a drought and a famine, it would have been totally appropriate for her to withhold any rations that she had to care for herself, as she knew this might have been her last meal. But instead, she gave generously anyway. She might have been afraid, but she didn't let her fear stop her from sharing what she had. I read somewhere that poor people in America give more money a way to charity by percentage of their income than the wealthy. Did you know the poor in America are more generous than the rich? Ain't that something? Looks like that's been true for a long time. True back in ancient Near Eastern times, back in the wilderness, back in Zarephath, down in the house of Eshet Shail, where we find an alternative to the death-dealing scarcity of King Haab. In that poor woman's kitchen, there's where we find the kingdom of God, an economy of abundance. That's where Elijah found healing and where Eshet Shail found the power of resurrection. And most of us are not poor like the widow, but we are still in need of healing. And yet one of the myths that we struggle to shake off as people who have something is that our healing is somebody else's problem. Maybe it's the decades of somebody else raising our children or the decades of somebody else cooking our food or the decades of somebody else cleaning our houses or the decades of somebody else entertaining us with music or the decades of somebody else 
waiting on us hand and food, or the decades of somebody else serving us, or the decades of somebody else caring for our loved ones, or the decades of somebody else praying for us. But whatever it is, or whatever it was, that some of us have come to believe now that healing is somebody else's responsibility. We've come to think that someone else is going to do this for us. Some counselor or therapist is going to do this for us. Some teacher or doctor is going to do it for us. Some artist or musician is going to do it for us. Some church somewhere. Hear me now. Many think that some pastor is going to do it for them. But that's the delusion of the empire. That's what King Ahab and all the property owners of the world want us to think, that somebody else is supposed to heal us, or worse, that somebody poor is supposed to do it for us. No, we are the agents of our own healing, and we can't outsource, export, or delegate our healing. Jesus asks, do you want to be well? And then we all say yes, but then he says, then pick up your mat. And we're like, eh. He says, stand up. Man, jump into that pool of water. Nah. Go and sin no more. I'm okay right now. Tell me what you want. Mm. Go do it for yourself. Don't wait for somebody else to do it for you. If you want to be well, become an agent of your own healing. The truth is that the healing of our bodies and souls is tied up with the healing of the earth and the healing of the poor. If we seek our own personal healing without seeking the healing of the rivers and the ravens of the earth, the widows and the orphans of our world, then our healing becomes another idol. Another fertility god like Baal who lets us feel quenched and full while the world dies of thirst and hunger. And so our path begins by shaking off the empire and venturing out into the wilderness and living with the land and the birds and entering into solidarity with the earth and the poor who live upon it like Eshet Shail. You know, it's interesting that nobody was mad when Jesus opened up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah in his hometown and took over the service. And nobody was mad when he proclaimed, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and let the oppressed go free and proclaim the jubilee of the Lord's favor. Nobody was mad when he said, the scripture has been filled in your hearing and dropped the mic and sat down. Luke tells us, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. Maybe Jesus should have just left it there. No, they got mad at Jesus when he said, you know, the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah. When there was a drought for three years and six months and a severe famine all over the land, and yet, Jesus said, Elijah was sent to none of them except the widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And when the people heard this, everyone in the synagogue was filled with rage. They got up, they drove Jesus out of town, and led him to a cliff and tried to throw him off it. As long as the good news was for the Israelites, everything was fine. But as soon as the good news required a trip to Zarephath, as soon as healing required taking responsibility not only for oneself but others, as soon as it required entering into solidarity with foreigners, the people went homicidal. What about us? We're not going to get out of this moral, spiritual, and ecological doubt, drought by doing the same things we've always done. Perhaps our healing is available to us, but it's in the places we don't want to go. There is a balm in Gilead, but we don't want to go to Gilead. We want to stay right here where we are. 
but Gilead doesn't have a delivery service that serves Myers Park. We have to come to the grips with the fact that our healing resides in the wilderness, in Zarephath, in the house of a stranger. Our path to healing and new life can only be found in the practices that help people survive in the desert, economic sharing, radical hospitality, the stewardship of the earth and its resources, extravagant generosity. The question that it comes down to is this, do we want to continue to live with King Ahab and his kingdom of scarcity and ecological disaster, or do we want to find healing? an abundant life? Do we want to keep living in an economy of sickness or do we want to be made well? If healing is really what we are looking for and not just something that we say, then we must take responsibility. We must step out of our comfort zones. We must choose to live among the rivers and the ravens, among the widows and the orphans because it is only there where we can be healed by a stranger. Amen.